Welcome to Love Unpacked, a podcast based on the book Love Unpacked. I'm your host, Andy Franklin. Join me on a journey to unpack our stories, confront our past, and find our way to unconditional love. How is everyone feeling today? I know last episode was pretty heavy, and I'm going to be honest, this one is heavy as well. It is a similar situation, another trigger warning. We are dealing with death here, so um, (laughs) I apologize. I think when I was structuring my book, I was thinking better just to put them back to back than than to have them spread out. I don't know. Honestly, I don't know what I was thinking. (laughs) You'd have to talk to 2019 me who was structuring it. But yeah, I, I think that this is still an important conversation. I mean, actually, I think it's an incredibly important conversation, especially for women, because today we're going to be reading about anger. And I think anger is something that we as females are told not to have. And it's considered very unbecoming to be angry as a woman. And yet it is something that we all have It is part of who we are. It is part of what keeps us safe in the world. And I just, I mean, obviously this will all be touched on in the book, but I love anger. I think it's an important thing that needs to be talked about more and needs to be normalized for women. So yeah, let's do this. Let's get angry. Chapter 12. Anger. The Bull and the Lioness. Bitterness is like cancer. It eats upon the host. But anger is like fire. It burns it all clean. Maya Angelou. Are you fucking kidding me? I overheard Declan, now five years old, scolding his little brother for ruining his aircraft made of brightly colored blocks. Are you fucking kidding me, Bennett? I didn't have to wonder where my sweet five-year-old got a foul-sounding sentence like that from, because I already knew it was from me. That night, I crawled sheepishly into bed with a generous glass of wine to drown out the day. That season, I was blocking out a lot of days with cheap bottles of wine. Declan said, are you fucking kidding me today to Bennett? I didn't even know what to do. What could I say when he learned it from me? I've never been an angry person before, but I've had such a hard time controlling my emotions recently. Derek gestured for me to lay in his lap, so I pulled my shirt over my head and balled it up to make a pillow on his knee. I presented my bare skin to his hands like a canvas to paint with his fingertips. He stroked my spine with his trim nails and let out a deep sigh. (sighs) It's okay, Mama. You've been through a lot recently. Nobody expects you to be normal or okay. You're doing the best you can, and the boys know how much you love them. He was right. I'd been through a lot recently. Only a month had passed since I found one of my best friends dead, after all. And whenever I was awake, I could still see her glossy white eyes staring at me completely devoid of the life I saw inhabit them for 14 years of spirited friendship and soulful sisterhood. Katie was the bitmoji queen. 
I honestly had no idea what in the hell a Bitmoji was until one day she was flooding my phone with this red-headed, fair-skinned avatar in glasses that was holding rainbows, eating pizza, riding unicorns, and peeking through windows saying, I see you. They were colorful, sassy, and hilarious, much like their human doppelganger. And even though I never really understood them, I loved how much she adored them. Rape, of all things, brought us together. During my time with Dean, he introduced us, thinking my trauma may help her through her own. Katie was two years younger than I, and I was instantly drawn to her. I immediately inherited this deep need to protect her. Despite knowing how impossible it was, I tried. She was my chosen sister, a statement she proudly told everyone, so much so that it confused members of my own family at my wedding and made them wonder if there was a redheaded stepchild somewhere in the mix they'd forgotten about somehow. Katie wore colorful bows in her hair, had an affinity for anything with sparkles, and always kept a spare pair of socks in her purse. Her relationship with chicken was complicated, but her love for all things French wasn't. She drank tea, ate croissants, and loved a good wine night. She was cultured and crass, bubbling and complicated, and she'd absolutely no idea just how wonderfully beautiful and brilliant she was. There was also darkness, a rumbling that stirred, tricking her into thinking there wasn't a place in this world for her bewitching radiance. She openly struggled with depression as well as chronic physical pain. She tried to jump in the water more than once, but so many of us tethered her to the bridge. Her body never made it past the edge because we gently pulled her from the railing time and time again. We'd cry out to her, You are here. You are safe. You are loved. Stay here with us. Stay here where it is warm, dry, and safe. Stay here with us, Katie. The night after I found her lifeless, I lay in bed watching planet Earth, trying to give my brain something, anything else to contemplate. The narrator was highlighting bulls in Africa, and they were all in the watering hole. Suddenly, a pack of lions appeared and began circling the bulls. They all started to panic and flee, but the lions stayed diligent. After all, they didn't need every bull. They only needed one. The lions worked together to distract a bull while a lioness pounced on its back. She sunk her teeth into his shoulder, and I gasped as I watched him struggle to get her off of him. The narrator chimed in with his British accent, Koshnik. He isn't done yet, but to win, the bull must shake off the lioness. A bull was trying to fight a lion. The scene ended with the bull losing the fight and becoming a meal for the lioness and her pack. I changed the channel and spent the remainder of the evening wondering if Katie simply lost her battle to the lion that stalked her for so long. I don't believe she killed herself at least not intentionally. Still, her poetic soul died on October 10th, 2018. World Mental Health Day.
Somehow she made a statement with her death without saying a single word to any one of us. When I found her, she was already gone. I knew it the moment I walked up on her truck and saw her mouth and eyes wide open, completely void of life. When I called 911, the dispatcher told me to pull her from the vehicle, lay her body on the cold asphalt, and compress on her chest until paramedics arrived. It took all my strength to lift her limp body from the seat, and I fell to my knees when she began to topple over me, refusing to let her body hit the ground and using mine as a soft barrier. Despite my CPR training, Katie was announced dead by paramedics 10 minutes later. Months after, toxicology would tell us she'd already been gone for three hours when I found her. Yet as I sat on the curb across from her stiff body, now covered with a thin white sheet, I didn't know that. I locked my knees with the palms of my hands to steady their convulsing. Through the cracks in my fingers and the lens of my tears, the sky revealed no hint of distress, with its stiff clouds peaked like a frothy meringue, resting over shades of saltwater taffy blue. I felt betrayed by its magnificent display in a time of unprecedented horror, but to look away was to gaze at a 14-year friendship under a thin white sheet, and I felt equally cheated by the anonymity. The only other place to look, it seemed, was down, at the loosely rolled sleeves now crawling past my freckled forearms, at the knees of my inky black leggings, kissed in dirt. Her body had slumped across mine like an anchor hitting the bottom of the ocean, leaving hints of a turbulent seabed on my palpitating skin. Now, it rested in the street like the molted exoskeleton of a hermit crab, Life hollowed out of a once-vibrant shell. Three hours later, I found myself sitting on a bench next to Derek outside of our son Declan's elementary school. I'd just experienced the most traumatic event of my life, but school still got out at 2.20 p.m. and somebody needed to be there to claim our child. Since I was in no state to be left alone, Derek and I went together heavily. I looked at my hands, and noticed two popped blood vessels, the consequence of applying firm, constant pressure to a chest. As I gained a sense of my own physical existence and appearance for the first time, I looked up and noticed all the other ordinary people around us. I was holding my little sister's dead body a few hours ago, and nobody here would ever be able to tell, I muttered to Derek. I wonder what other heartaches and tragedies exist on this lawn right now. He was right. I'd been through a lot recently. It was easy to dismiss my anger because anger was a perfectly acceptable response to what I experienced. People understand you losing control once in a while under challenging circumstances, and finding a loved one dead indeed fell into that category. Oddly enough, it was her death that made me take a more in-depth look at my anger. The only way to survive death is to slow down. And when you stop moving, you're forced to spend more time with yourself. 
you begin to see the things about yourself and other people you never saw before because you were flying so fast through your life. Katie's death brought all of my biggest fears straight to the surface. Everything triggered post-traumatic episodes for me, from a creak in the floor to someone entering a room without me realizing it. I was terrified to be home alone, which wasn't a good look for a writer and stay-at-home mom. So I spent months wandering stores, sitting in my car in crowded parking lots, muttering grounding exercises my therapist gave me to try to keep myself in the present moment instead of back on that asphalt with her. I didn't want to be around people because it felt like they wanted me to be better than I was, and I couldn't fake anything anymore. Not a smile, not a laugh, not a damn thing. In a way, I reverted to a childlike state. It was as if my brain stopped filtering my social cues because it was working overtime just to keep my body from trembling. My face and body language expressed precisely what I was feeling at all times. It was there, in my inability to mask anything, when I met Anger up close. She'd been circling, using her friends to distract me until she found an opening to strike. When she pounced, her teeth sunk right into me as if the impression of her jaw was already fossilized on my skin. Anger, the lioness. I couldn't shake her anymore. Then I realized, maybe I was never meant to wiggle myself from her grip. Perhaps anger was never really the predator here. Maybe she was the bull, and I was the lioness all along. I didn't have to wonder where Declan heard the phrase. I knew it was one of mine. Something that often erupted from my lips long before I held Katie's body in my arms. The truth was, anytime my kids would kick or scream or hit, I'd pompously blame Derek's genetic makeup. They've got that Franklin temper. Yet, are you fucking kidding me, was the catchphrase my child had acquired from my mouth. I spent so much time pretending to be a mouse, I even convinced myself. But now that I couldn't hide, my anger was free to roam rampantly. Was I born an angry person? Did I need counseling? Was I one glass of spilled milk away from becoming a complete psychopath? Was my anger dangerous? Was I capable of harming others? Could I be trusted to live with something we're told is so sinister? It was hard to come to terms with the fact that I'd been under a spell most of my life, believing I could cast anger out in a way like an evil spirit. I wanted to lean into the reason Derek handed me on a silver platter, but I couldn't shake the lioness. I couldn't hide from myself anymore, even if I wanted to escape. Experiencing death up close locked that in. Instead, I'd no choice but to see exactly what was laid out in front of me, and what I found was a lifetime of justifying. There was always an excuse, some outside force for why I couldn't keep my shit together. I just didn't get enough sleep last night. I've been really stressed. The kids are going through another milestone, and it's a rough one. Not enough caffeine. Too much caffeine. 
I had a long day, hard day, emotional day. I'm on my period. Someone cut me off. Traffic. Did you hear the way they talk to me? I'm not usually this batshit crazy. Why am I acting this way? This isn't me. But it was. It always had been. I felt it rumbling my entire life. A slow simmer under the earth's surface. It was growing like a heartbeat in a volcano, right before it spouts off and destroys the surrounding land. I simply couldn't see it until there was nowhere left for me to hide. Unpacking anger. I broke my brother's nose in middle school. I've gotten so used to telling the story in a way that exonerates me, so it's almost impossible to remember the truth. Chris moved the pillow, so it was his fault. Why would he move the pillow while I was punching it? I became super skilled at spinning the tail to mask my rage. But here's the no-bullshit version. The version I've never allowed my brother to claim until now. Chris is only 15 months younger than I. My mom always said she raised us like twins because we were so close in age. Since I now have children of my own only two years apart, I can see what she meant. We were close, but we also fought a lot, the way kids do. I frequently picked fights, partially because I was tired of having a living shadow for any and everything that I did, and partly because I loved the sound of my own voice. I don't remember our exact age, but middle school sounds right. Chris and I were fighting over which movie to watch. I wanted Bird on a Wire, and he was fighting for Terminator, and I had no intention of letting him win. Verbal shots were fired, and whatever he threw my way sent a rush of blood to my face, and I immediately got up off the floor to chase him. He ran to his room, and I hopped on top of him and started wailing. He put a pillow over his head to cover his face, so I began punching at it. I imagine it was hard to breathe under that fluffy headrest, so he pulled his face out for air, and my fist plowed straight into his nose. The moment my knuckles made contact with his skin, I knew I'd messed up royally. It'd be weeks before the break was confirmed, and years before he'd get it fixed, and I couldn't fess up to the fact that I had every intention of hurting him that day. It all got very Eye of the Tiger quickly, with me movie montaging my way through the thrill of the fight. I hadn't intended to do the sort of damage I did, but I claimed for years that I didn't mean to harm, and that's a lie. I meant to hurt him. I just didn't mean to break his nose. I've spent a lot of time thinking about this, because it's the first moment I can recall the veil lifting. Before I punched my brother in the nose, everything else was child's play. We fought in all the ways you expect brothers and sisters to fight. It was innocent, normal human reactions to situations. But as I moved into an older version of myself, I began to notice that nobody wanted to be around an angry girl. Anger was unbecoming. It was ugly. And I couldn't be those things. I couldn't be unagreeable, unlovable. I wanted to be the kind of person other people needed so that I'd never be invisible again. As a result, I held everything in impeccably. 
I bottled up the unsettling, the frustrating, and the infuriating. Anything that might cause waves stayed locked away inside of me. That is, until it couldn't anymore. When I punched Chris in the nose, it was like the escalation of my anger had been pressurized for so long, and someone came by and popped off the lid, sending the true me exploding everywhere. Chris was the first victim of my suppressed anger, but he wouldn't be the last. Unpacked, I've found countless incidents where I've steamed up and poured over accidentally. You're probably thinking, Andy, you told us five chapters ago that you threw a softball at someone's face, and you didn't think you had rage issues? But I honestly always thought they were isolated incidents, because someone had done something to me or hurt me in such an extreme way. I used my anger as being circumstantial, because that way I could still be lovable, agreeable, and kind. I could still walk around like Snow White, singing to forest animals and being the fairest of them all. Because laid out, that's exactly what I wanted, and the only obstacle standing between me and sainthood was anger. I saw it as a plague I needed to cut out of my skin. I was knee-deep into writing this book when Katie died, and the topic of anger was nowhere on my radar. I think one of the most significant discoveries I've had since I began the journey of unpacking is how many stories got stuck inside of the bag, even after I dumped it all out in front of me. Like loose change still clinging to the lining of a zip pouch, I was still clutching to the tale that anger was a guest who occasionally dropped in to visit, rather than a permanent resident within me. In a way, Katie gave me the gift of transparency and clarity. Learning to live without her required all of my energy, so I didn't have any extra to put into keeping the facade alive. And once the lioness was unleashed, I became acutely aware that freedom was all she ever needed. The truth is, anger belongs to all of us. Females grow up hearing people scold them for their anger. Passion is seen as a sign of instability in a woman, while a man's is admired as conviction. We tell little girls to watch their volume, their tone, their attitude. That's not how young ladies act. So most of us padlock anger. We do what we're told we have to do to receive love and favor. We smile, agree, and keep our mouths shut, denying a piece of who we are and abandoning ourselves until we spontaneously combust from the pressure. Make no mistake, you'll detonate. Any emotion forced into dormancy will eventually find its way into the spotlight, whether you want it to or not. And you'll keep blowing over and over again until you learn to choose yourself first. Until you realize anger was never meant to live inside of a cage. As a society, we fear anger. It makes sense to a degree, because we see it as the cause of our worst conflicts, wars, and deaths. But anger isn't the enemy here. It's the bull. In our quest for peace on Earth, anger was portrayed as the bad guy, the villain. Tales of its fury were executed so well that people everywhere began believing the hype and spreading the rumors of its dangerous nature. Like telling a child a story about the monster under the bed to get them to sleep, only to realize all the story did was invoke fear and keep the kid wide-eyed and scared shitless all night. 
Is the villain the imaginary bed monster or the adult who created it? We've come so far as people, finally noticing the negative patterns affiliated with shame and demonization, yet we still struggle to accept anger for its normal part of our humanity. Think about it. If we never had anger, how would we know our limits, our boundaries? When we feel angry, it's our mind's way of saying something isn't right. It's an offering from our brains to check in with ourselves and see the more profound feelings at play. Why is this making me so upset? Is something else going on to trigger this response? Have I reached a place where I no longer feel safe, secure, or empowered? Anger is what tips us off to injustices, both in our lives and in the world around us. It's the friend who isn't afraid to give you some tough love. The one who notices when your boss has been taking advantage of you. The one who throws a cold glass of water in your face when you've been complacent in a lousy situation for too long. We need our anger just as much as we need our joy. But since most of us were told that anger is wrong, we treat it like a fly buzzing around near our ear. Like a nuisance we can swat away until it grows into something out of a cheesy 80s horror film and devours us. When you banish a part of yourself, it's because you don't believe that part is worthy of the dreams you desire. You're hoping if you can shove it far enough down in the bag, then it'll just dissolve over time. But all that does is leave you with one less piece. You can build a beautiful life for yourself and start carefully arranging all the edges together, But without all the pieces, you'll never feel whole. You'll always be searching for more. I'm not saying to marinate in a thick layer of anger for the rest of your life. This isn't an excuse to walk around with guns blazing and a chip on your shoulder. Soaking in a casserole dish of fury isn't the answer. In fact, unchecked anger is just another way to hold ourselves back from love. I don't want you to be angry but I do want you to be the whole damn pie. And the only way to do this is to allow yourself to process your emotions, all of them. Living in duality is an expression of love. Allowing our griefs and joys, our trials and triumphs, our hurts and healings to coexist freely is an invitation to love all of ourselves, not just the parts we deem acceptable. It's like trying to play on a seesaw by yourself. You can't. You need weight equitably on both sides to lift from the ground, and the balance of both anger and calm to keep moving forward prosperously, to keep yourself from neither exploding or staying unfazed by life forever. When anger shows up, don't exile her. Instead, ask her questions. Dig a little deeper to uncover her origin. Listen to what she's trying to tell you and let her speak. To win, the bull must shake off the lioness. We have to climb off of anger's back and let it roar. We can't rock it or cut it out of our skin or ban it to the bottom of the bag, especially not if we want to experience love in its totality. Not if we're going to truly and fully live. 
Thank you so much for listening to the Love Unpacked podcast. I'm your host, Andy Franklin, and you can find me on Instagram at Andy M. Franklin and at love underscore unpacked. And if you're interested in purchasing the book, it is sold on Amazon, IndieBound, and Barnes & Noble.